Heavenly Father, how great it is to sing of Zion and hope and fear that is gone because of the death of Christ. Lord, we rejoice today. What a prayer in song has prepared our hearts to bow before your holy word. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And we pray all of this for the glory and sake of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Years ago, Michio Kaku wrote an article in a magazine called The New Scientist. The article was entitled, The Physics of Impossibility. And of course, they were broaching the subject of what is impossible? Is there anything that is truly impossible? These words are often thrown around, he says, by people who are certain that some things are scientifically ridiculous. And he goes back in history. He talks about the celebrated Victorian physicist, Lord Kelvin, who was a pioneer in the founding of thermodynamics. But he also had some strong convictions about what is possible. And he said, there will never be a craft heavier than air that can fly. He said that in 1895. He also believed that x-rays were a hoax and that the radio had no future. <laughs> kind of wrong in those areas. Albert Einstein in 1934 was quoted in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette as saying, there's not the slightest indication that nuclear energy can ever be harnessed. But of course, now it is. And to scientists today, they say, there are some things that seem impossible, like time travel or teleportation, where uh, kind of a Star Trek thing, you know, you become elements and you're transported from one place to another, or traveling faster than time. It seems as though all of those things truly are impossible. But he goes on to say, are they just impossible for today's technology? Or will they be impossible for tomorrow's discoveries? In physics, he says, never say never. It's an interesting question. What is impossible? Why, just a year ago, I thought it was impossible that the Lions could win the Super Bowl. <laughs> now, they're not going to this year, but boy, they had a great run. What's impossible? Maybe the national debt ever being paid off? Someone wrote, and I Googled this, what are things that people deem impossible? And one of the sad ones was this, life becoming fair. That's impossible. But what might seem possible for man, whether today or in the future, or impossible for man, God is the God of the possible, except when he isn't. <laughs> so for instance, in Romans chapter six, or excuse me, uh, before we get to Romans 11, Hebrews chapter six, we are told that it is impossible for God to lie. And when we get to Romans chapter 11, it says it's unthinkable, impossible for God 
to reject his own people. I want to tell you that there is a theological impossibility today that encourages our hearts when we recognize that there are some things that God cannot or will not do and he will not forget his people. Whether we're talking about the nation of Israel, the covenant people of the Old Testament, or whether we're talking about the church, the covenant people in the new covenant. If you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 11, we now begin this new section in, or the the last chapter of this section in Romans before we begin the final section in Romans chapter 12. You might recall that chapter 9, 10, and 11 is all about Israel, Israel's election in 9, Israel's rejection in 10, and then Israel's restoration in chapter 11. We ended off in chapter 10 with these words. But concerning Israel, God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. At the end of the chapter that talks about Israel's rejection of Christ is this wonderful, hopeful picture of God with arms outstretched, waiting all day long for people to come back to him in faith. Now that leads us to the question that begins chapter 11, and the question is simply this. Paul says, I ask then, did God reject his people, the nation of Israel? And we're talking about ethnic Israel here, which is vitally important to understand, especially here in chapter 11. And Paul gives an answer that he's given about 10 times in the book of Romans. It's the strongest negative that anyone could ever give, and it simply is translated in some, in in the King James, God forbid, or by no means, or we might say, no, may it never, ever be. God never can neglect his people. Perhaps Paul is thinking of the book of Psalms, Psalm 94, verse 14, for the Lord will not reject his people, he will never forsake his inheritance. It's unthinkable, it's impossible, because God has given his word. Now, to support his claim that God will never reject or turn his back on his people, he gives some evidence, and here's the first one. Paul shares his own shocking story. In other words, God is, uh, there's a a lot of Israel that has rejected him. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, is what was said earlier. But Paul says, God has not forsaken his people, and I'm exhibit A. This is in verse 1, end of the verse. I am an Israelite, myself, a, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul's conversion was indeed a shocking one. Because he had given himself to persecuting the church and eliminating uh, pockets of believers wherever he could find them. And of course, the Lord met him on the road to Damascus. We read about that in Acts chapter, chapter 9. It was an amazing conversion and everyone knew about it. It was a story that was unexpected, but very, very powerful. 
And to add to the fact that this one man was saved, showing that God has not forgotten his people, are the words that were found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul said, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor, a violent man, yet I was shown mercy. The grace of the Lord was poured on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ. And here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief or I am the worst of all. And the argument is if God can save the worst of sinners, he can save you. So the conversion of the Apostle Paul is not only evidence that God has not given up his people, it is evidence that God can save anyone, no matter how wicked they have been. Powerful proof of God's amazing grace. Paul goes on to say he's of the, uh, he's the lineage of Abraham, Abraham's offspring, which is vitally important, especially when you're speaking to Jews. But he also adds that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. That's interesting. A point of pride. Uh, Maybe because Benjamin was the only one, only patriarch born in the promised land. Or maybe because the tribe of Benjamin was the first to cross the Red Sea onto dry ground. You can imagine, can't you, as every state in the United States finds reasons to boast So we have our pure Michigan ads and we boast about the beautiful water, the abundance of water. It's interesting that all of those advertisements are on sunny days. That doesn't seem quite right in Michigan, but the people haven't been here yet, so they'll find out. But we, we, we boast about our best points. And that's what Paul is doing too. But the tribe of Benjamin, wow, that was impressive. And then he adds to it a theological reason under, in his own conversion, but also supporting the idea that God has not rejected his people. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew, first part of verse 2. Embedded in that statement is the fact that they are his people. And the idea of foreknowledge, we studied that a little bit in chapter 8, whom he foreknew, uh, he predestined and called and justified and glorified those five amazing words that all hook together. So whatever foreknowledge means, it has to mean that you will in the end, everyone he foreknows will be glorified. That's the power of Romans 8. So when he says God will not reject his people, it's because they are his people. He foreknew them, he foreloved them, and he embraced them in the covenant. The apostle Paul could say, chief of sinners, though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me. Died that I might live on high, and lives that I might never die. It is impossible that God's people, Israel, should ever be rejected. There's a second evidence that Paul gives. So he goes from the singular, his own story, to, a, uh, to the remnant. And this is where he shares the story of Elijah. Elijah's fascinating story. Reading from Romans 11:2. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? 
how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So here is the story of the remnant, the few. While Paul's story was known to everyone, this story is hidden to most people. It goes unnoticed. In a particularly bleak period of history for Israel, when the worship of Jehovah seemed to be hanging by a thread, and the wicked king Ahab with his with his wife Jezebel, pushing the worship of Baal and killing God's prophets. Well, Elijah contended with the prophets on Mount Baal, or on Mount Carmel, remember that? And it was a great victory. And the prophets of Baal were slaughtered. But in 1 Kings chapter 19, Jezebel makes, takes an oath that Paul will become like my prophets. Paul, <laughs> that, that Elijah will become like my prophets. He will be wiped out and killed. And because of that, Elijah runs for fear. He goes miles to the south out of the jurisdiction of Ahab, finds a cave and hides in it, and has a prophet's pity party. This is what you and I do often. We have our own pity party. We feel so sorry for ourselves. Why has this happened to me? It never happens to anyone else. Am I the only one who is faithful to God? I mean, can't you read those words where Elijah said, they have torn down your altars and they've killed your prophets and I'm the only one that's left. And God says to him, you really have no clue, do you? By the way, the 7,000 does not mean 6,999 plus one. It's not a literal 7,000. It's a Hebrew idiom for too many to count. Don't we do that all the time? So we say we're going to do something. Why are you going to do that? I've got a million reasons. Well, no, you don't. You probably can't up can't come up with three. But we want to impress you with the fact that there's a whole lot of support here. God is saying too many to count. Think about the conversion of the, of the Hebrew people in the book of Acts where there's 3,000 at Pentecost and then a little bit later another 5,000 and then uh, priests coming to faith and all of this taking place. While it was amazing, but it was still a remnant. It was not the size of the majority. It was a faithful minority. And Paul wants to remind his readers that what happened in that day is also happening in his. Look at verse five. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be on works or because of works because if it were grace would no longer be grace so you've got God's 
foreknowledge as the theological underpinning even of Paul's conversion, but now you have the emphasis on God's amazing grace that indeed supports the fact that he will always build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now think of it right now, as you look around, it seems as though the church is losing ground. We see it in the news all the time. There are less people going to church than ever before. Don't get too upset with that. Understand that God has his people more than you can count because Jesus has promised to build his church and he will never stop. The faithful minority is going to survive because God will preserve them. God's plan has not miscarried and all that he desires to do, he indeed will do. I love the words of Stuart Briscoe who said this remnant. They were part of the unfailing group of people, the remnant, which runs like a thread through the bewildering tapestry of Israel's history. Yeah, Israel privileged beyond belief. Rejected God for idols, entrenched in sin, but always surviving because God has his people. The chief characteristic of the remnant of God is that they're chosen by grace and grace is God's gracious kindness to the undeserving. There's really only three ways to be saved. God does it, man does it, or there's a mixture of God and man in salvation. <laughs> this verse says you can't mix grace and works. So salvation, as it says in the book of Jonah, salvation is of the Lord and it's by grace. John Stott says there is still an Israelite remnant in the present and there is going to be an Israelite recovery in the future, which will lead to the blessing of the whole world. Israel's fascinating to watch and it's difficult to know what is going on because you've got a very secular Israel today. But God will keep his people and that's what you and I need to embrace. So we go from the singular, Paul's testimony, to the few, the testimony of the remnant evident in Elijah's day and evident in Paul's day, and evident in our day. But then he comes to the sad news, verse 7, of Israel's sad and horrible story. What then, verse 7? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. But remember how they sought it? According to chapter 9, verse 31, they sought salvation by their own righteousness. Never forget that. They did not find it because they were trying to create it. And salvation is not the work of man. We just read it's only by grace and grace alone. So in all of their efforts, and they are zealous, in all of their commitment, and they are faithful, they missed it because salvation is the work of God. 
So when we talk about God's choosing in the story of Paul, and we talk about God's grace in the story of the remnant, now we're talking about God's judgment in the story of the majority of the Jews who have rejected Christ. You'll notice in verse seven, the elect among them, they found it, but others were hardened. And that word often throws us for a loop because in scripture it talks about God hardening people. And in fact, this is in the passive tense, which means the Lord is the one who hardened them. But John Murray, a great theologian from Westminster, said this, this hardening is a judicial hardening and finds judicial ground in the unbelief and disobedience of its objects. The hardening is a process in which God gives people up to their own stubbornness. And the most famous illustration of this is Pharaoh And you'll find that Pharaoh turned his heart away from God before God began the hardening process. The hardening process is a frightening thing where God gives people up to what they want. And the rest of the verses taken from the Old Testament that are quoted here in Romans 11 make that abundantly clear. You say, what is hardening? Well, look at verse eight. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Spiritual insensitivity. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. To this very day, taken from the book of Deuteronomy and also from the book of Isaiah. Now, does that mean when God hardens someone that if they want to be saved, that God won't let them be saved? Oh, no, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that when God gives someone over to their own sin, they'll never want to be saved. That's what it means. This is God's judgment. How frightening is this? I don't know how often it happens. I think it's rather rare because there is so much in the scripture that talks about God wooing people back even when they've rejected. As we've seen at the end of chapter 10, the obstinate people of Israel still have the open hands of God wooing them home. And yet, sometimes God in judgment gives people over to their sin and lets them. Could that be you? If it is, you don't care. And if it is, you're probably not here. But if there's any heartbeat, any warmth toward Christ, if there's any conviction of sin, any desire to know forgiveness, if any of that is still in your heart, that's God's spirit still speaking. What is the hardening process? The spirit of stupor and spiritual insensitivity, eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear. He goes on and quotes David from Psalm 69 in a rather difficult portion of scripture to understand. May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Now I I think 
probably what that means, and this is but a spiritual guess, is the idea that their bountiful table of fellowship, taking some words from the New Living Translation, the table in which they enjoyed their partnerships and the positivity of hospitality has become a trap and a snare when they think all is well, all will be turned over. It might even have something of the idea of what happened on October 7 when families enjoying fellowship at their table were suddenly taken over by terrorists who turned the table over and took their lives and it was a disaster. And verse 10, may their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Blind eyes, again, that's already mentioned in the Deuteronomy Isaiah passage, but backs bent over gives the idea that you're under a heavy burden that is difficult to carry. Indeed, it is a burden maybe of grief or sin or fear. It's the oppression that weighs you down. And that's why the words of Jesus in Matthew 11 are so beautiful. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden by a horrible burden, and I will give you rest. The portion from the Psalms was often quoted regarding Jesus and became indeed very messianic in its perspective. But the idea is that when you think all is well, judgment comes. By the way, these quotes come from the three major divisions of the Old Testament, the law, Deuteronomy, the prophets, Isaiah, and the writings, the book of Psalms, which amounts to a comprehensive condemnation of those given such high and holy privilege and yet have rejected the wonderful wooing of Jesus. That's quite a downer at the end of verse 10. That's why I want you to jump down to verse 26, Romans eleven twenty-six, And so all Israel will be saved. Isn't that great? Now you have to remember that all is not all, always. I had a prophet who used to say all means all and that's all and I think a student said, not always. Never forgot that. No, not always, because sometimes it's speaking again about like the 7,000 idiom to mean a large majority, but whatever it means, all Israel means the masses that have rejected the Savior are the ones when Christ comes again will come back to the Savior. Read the book of the Revelation. There's going to be an amazing revival among the Hebrew people as they come back to their Savior. So, in essence, it's the grace of God that truly conquers. Think of it this way. You've got the one evidence in the life of the Apostle Paul. 
You've got the few as evidence in the remnant, and you've got the many, that is, the future conversion of the nation of Israel when their faith is turned into reality. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The eyes of those who don't know Christ are blind and we need to pray that God will open their eyes. The eyes of those who walk with Christ are open. They walk in the light as he is in the light and they have fellowship with one another. And the same Savior, the one who died for their sin, even though they reject him, stands waiting for them to turn from their sin because of grace. If you are here today, let these be testimonies given to you that God will not forget his people and he longs to save sinners. It's a true story of a mother and a daughter who lived in Edinburgh, Scotland in one of those long row houses down in the city. The widow, the woman was a widow. She was a believer and her daughter grew up in that believing home but left for the high life, the sinful life of Glasgow about 50 miles away. There she lived indeed a wayward life and never contacted her mother for years. Her mother never knew what had happened. But one day the daughter, stricken with guilt and remorse, thought about her mom back home and longed to be there and decided to leave her sin and return to her mother, the mother that she had so rudely neglected. She got in the train and took it to Waverly Station Arriving late at night, left the train station and walked toward her former home and was shocked to see as she went over the hill that the door was open and the light was on and it was very late at night. Mom must be ill, she thought to herself. Perhaps she's dying. And she began to run. She thrust open the door and when she did, her mother said, Joan, is that you? She said, yes, yes, mom, it's me. Why is the door open when it's so late and the light is still on? And her mother said, the light has stayed on and the door has stayed open since she left home. Welcome home. And so says your creator. The light is on. The door is open and so are my arms. Come home. Let's pray. Oh, Father, our God, our Savior, our Creator, forgive us for our sin of running from you. Lord, thank you that by your grace you awaken us to see our sin and draw us to yourself. And Lord, we truly believe on you with all of our heart. It's our decision to embrace you. But Lord, some are caught in their sin and they cannot see. Some here today have never trusted you. Oh Lord, I pray that you will open their eyes that they might behold your mercy and grace and see Jesus calling them home. In your name we pray, amen.